And so the Major League Players Association really needs to be a champion that's saying, no, we're out here looking out for the interests of players. When you get into the minors, we're an organization that's looking out for your interests. We don't want you eating dog food while you're trying to play a game. You're making zillions of dollars for these owners in the minor leagues, in, t- in, in areas of this country that have no major league teams and where these minor league franchises are growing and are becoming business. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, just in time for the start of the Major League Baseball season, we speak to labor organizer, writer, activist, and former president of the Trans-Africa Forum, Bill Fletcher. We speak to him about the importance of organizing minor league baseball players, especially in the wake of the recent spending bill that comes out of Washington, which actually suppresses their wages. We also are going to speak this week about Black Lives Matter organizers in Sacramento and the way that their activism following the police murder of Stefan Clark has ricocheted into the Sacramento Kings organization. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and a very special Kaepernick watch. But first, let's go to Bill Fletcher. So, Bill Fletcher, there's been a lot in the news. Before we speak about the conditions of minor league baseball players, there's been much in the news about the spending bill that's coming out of Washington and its effect on that it could have on the salaries of minor league baseball players. Can you first speak to that about what is it about this bill that affects their earning potential? Well, you know, what's interesting, Dave, and first of all, thanks for having me on the program. Um, it, the bill itself has nothing to do with minor league baseball. What's happened is that the major league baseball owners snuck into the bill something that they had been trying to work on for a number of years, which was to place restrictions on the ability of minor league players to access uh, federal and state wage and hour laws. Mm. And, and this is one of those games that, play, that happens in Congress. You know, like they'll pass a bill and all of a sudden you find out that someone just got an air base in their district or something. Mm-hmm. and has nothing to do with the bill itself. So this got included uh, or was to be included as part of uh, a stealth program, essentially. And, and one of the things about this and one of the reasons I think that it was being done is that this effort is very unpopular. It, it, it's one of these things when people understand the conditions of minor league players, and then they see the games that are being run by the major league owners, there's no sympathy for that. Uh, right. On the other hand, the lobbying that's gone on has aimed at trying to derail the ability of players to access their, their rights as workers. So, in other words, if major league owners and their lobbyists were lobbying for the minor league player pay access <laughs> reduction act, it wouldn't be something that they could get away with from a PR perspective. But being able to slip it stealthily in this bill uh, has tremendous benefits to the billionaires who run the sport. That's exactly it. And in fact, there was a bill that they were trying to get in for a number of years 
that actually went nowhere. It was, uh, I think it was the something like the preservation of America's pastime bill or something, something, oh some ridiculous God. name. And it, it wasn't going anywhere. And, and again, this is, this is a trick that's done, you know, on Capitol Hill. That's ridiculous. So you mentioned um, that, that, that there's an effort to obscure the, the conditions and pay for the actual conditions and pay for minor league baseball players. Can you speak a little bit about what those conditions are? Sure. Um, there was an excellent piece that was written uh, in uh, the summer of 2016 in the Washington Post that actually inspired me. Um, I had very little awareness of what the actual conditions were, but it was a piece, August 26th, called Baseball's Minor Leaguers Pursue Their Dreams Below the Poverty Line. And, what, and, and I subsequently had discussions with this attorney and former AA uh, pitcher uh, named Garrett Brushhouse, who's in St. Louis, who really helped to fill in the picture. The, the situation for minor league players is almost analogous to agricultural workers. Uh, you have a situation where they are paid, first of all, only when they work. Uh, their salaries range around $1,100 a month. So, uh, and that again is when they're working. And so they may, may get about 10 grand a year. They are responsible for their own living conditions uh, for most of their supplies. And what you end up having is a situation where quite literally minor league players will have to cram into apartments or houses uh, and share them with other people. They may bring along inflatable ma uh, uh, mattresses with them when they travel because they don't know where they're going to sleep. Uh, there are people around the country, really uh, warm-hearted individuals who have opened up their homes to minor league players, knowing that the minor leaguers cannot afford uh, suitable housing. So we're talking about uh, a horrible situation. And then when you add on to that, the particular situation for migrant uh, ball players, you know, those that have come uh, particularly from like the Dominican Republic uh, and, and other parts of uh, Central America, where they are forwarding back remittances uh, to their homes, their families. So the money that they actually have to live on is very, very limited. Uh, now, one quick thing, Dave, is that uh, it, it's interesting. Um, my wife wrote this great uh letter to the editor the other day to the Washington Post about Yeah, I this saw situation. that. We'll link to it. That was terrific. Yeah. That was a terrific no, thank letter. Thank you. I, and I'll tell her you said that. I, it, it's, it was really, really great. And then I noticed there was a comment by someone who essentially said that, uh, that the situation for minor league players is not about opportunity. It's like they have now a chance to get into the major leagues. And it, it's as, it, it basically what this writer was saying, this uh, person who's writing a comment, is that the minor league players should have to suffer, and I mean suffer, in order to have the chance of getting into the major leagues. And that just, that's absurd. Yeah, that is absolutely absurd. Uh, we are talking to Bill Fletcher, who's spent his adult life as part of the labor movement. Bill, 
is what brought you to this issue the fact that you do have this experience uh, with farm workers and with with migrant workers and you saw the connection between baseball players and these other uh, disenfranchised laborers who you've organized in the past? What brought me to this, Dave, is that I'm a born-again baseball fan. And I grew up with baseball uh, in New York City, loved baseball. Then I lost interest in it. And I reconnected with baseball after rediscovering the contributions of Kurt Flood, the late Kurt Flood. And that uh, and his fight for free agency. And that really started me down a particular road. But then you add on to that, that I've spent the lion's share of my adult life in the labor movement, fighting with and for workers. And I'll tell you, man, when I read this article in the Washington Post, I looked at this and it was actually my wife who said, you know, Bill, these guys need a union. And, yeah. and well, I why said, why don't you know, they have a right? union? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the pieces I'm able to get seem to indicate that there have been over the years certain efforts towards unionizing. And in fact, this may come as a surprise, uh, it came as a surprise to me. I found out just recently that back in the 1970s, the Coalition of Black Trade Unions had actually tried uh, exploring the possibility of helping to build a union among minor league baseball players. Um, but they and others that have tried have had great difficulty. And part of it has to do with the structure of minor league baseball, but the, but the bigger part seems to be fear. Um, and this is a discussion that part of the discussion I've had with Garrett Brushhouse um, about it, that, who is very pro-union, but he, he was saying that one of the problems is that many minor leaguers are afraid that if they demonstrate their interest in organization, in building a union, that they'll get blacklisted, that they'll never get into the majors. And, and their hopes are, I mean, this is, this is the objective of their lives. And, and so you have that. The other factor, and I want to be careful about the way this comes across, is that the Major League Baseball Players Association has not expressed an interest in organizing minor league baseball players. And I would wager that were they to, that is, if the Major League Baseball Players Association made a commitment to organizing minor leaguers or supporting the organizing minor leaguers, I would put a dollar to a donut that that would inspire organizing and that people would be become enthusiastic. Um, but the, the major league players uh, association have in principle supported unionization, but they haven't done anything at least in the recent past. Yeah. What would they say? Because historically, particularly under the, leadership of Marvin Miller and Donald Fear. I mean, th th this is a union that uh, was feared and was often right. held up as the strongest labor union, not only in sports, but in the United States at different points. What would their argument be if we asked them directly, like, why haven't you guys gone full board to organize these minor league players? I keep asking myself that, man. Um, this is what I would guess. 
I would guess that one answer would be uh, that that the they would want to see some level of interest expressed by minor leaguers before they made any commitment, which I can understand. Mm-hmm. I think a second thing that they might say is that if the minor leaguers get organized, that this might have ultimately an impact on the compensation that major league players receive. Um, mm-hmm. They might also say that the number of teams in the minor leagues might be reduced, um, which would be not so much affect them, but might affect, uh, you know, how minor leaguers viewed it. Uh, and they might also say that this is not an area that they've really, that, that plays to their strength. In other words, they've organized, they understand the majors. And even though they all came out of the minors, um, they have not, as far as I can tell, done an industry study of the, of the minor leagues. So they might feel that this, this is not in their lane. Um, on the other hand, I would say to them, yeah, got it. But the future of the Major League Baseball Players Association, it seems to me, must be based on uh, thinking about the baseball player uh, not just when they're in the major leagues, but from their minor league experience into retirement. And they've got to be thinking about the, the baseball player and the fan. Uh, and, and this is becoming even more important now, given what appears to me, and you would know better than I do, to be a structural crisis in major league baseball that's represented by this free agency problem that we've seen for the last few months, which I think is, is, beyond, is, is more than just collusion on the part of the owners, but is something deeper. And, and so that's why the, I would hope that the Major League Baseball Players Association would start to think more broadly about tackling this, this challenge. Ooh. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, the issue of collusion and free agency and these free agents who are getting minimal interest from major league teams in a way that looks like a united attack by major league baseball Mm -hmm. owners against these players as a way to suppress wages. I think, I don't know this for a fact at all, but I think if we asked, Oh, sorry about that. Three, two, one. I think if we asked Tony Clark, the former major league player, who's now the head of the major league baseball players association, I think he, he would say if, you know, under sodium pentothal and truth serum <laughs> that, you know, they're playing serious defense right now, just trying to survive this onslaught from major league owners. How are they going to possibly take on an entirely, as I think they would think of it or conceive of it, a parallel campaign to organize minor league players when they're under the greatest onslaught that the union's been under probably uh, since 1994 and the, the lockout that canceled the World Series mm-hmm. and part of the 95 season. What would you say in response to that, that, you know, how can we possibly even conceive of organizing minor league players when we're, we're fighting for survival on the major league front? I, I think that that is, that's a critically important and very sincere question that I can imagine uh, arising from the Players Association. And I would say mm-hmm. that when you're in a battle, 
sometimes what you have to do is the unexpected. Uh, you have to do something that throws your opponent off, confuses them about what exactly the terrain is. I, in the, I, I call it an airborne assault, right? When you go behind the opponent's lines. In this case, the Major League Players Association needs the support of the larger public. Um, they need, uh, and, and this is a problem, as you well know, we've talked about this in basketball, football. It's a problem that exists within sports where the owners and their, their allies are frequently able to misconstrue struggles that are going on in sports as billionaires versus millionaires and something that regular people shouldn't really care about. And I would argue that if the Major League Baseball Players Association wants to win on the issue of free agency, but more broadly, they have to change the entire terms of the discussion. They, they really need to be seen as the champions of, of baseball players. And they need to be making uh, concerted outreach to the larger community to explain to people about what's happening to players. Because, because when you look at the situation facing the, the, uh, the major league players right now with the, the, the challenge of free agency, is that what's going on is that essentially what the major league players are being told is that the, at, the, at the age of 30, they should just resign. They should retire. There's nothing, there's nothing more. For them, wow. that's essentially what's what's going on right now. That the owners, using you know this great word that people are using, analytics, um, they're focusing on getting younger players. They're not interested in, in in making heavy investment in the super players who are now eligible for free agency. So they're basically saying to these uh, these established veterans who often play a critical role. In, in strengthening and uh, solidifying teams, they're basically telling them to go to hell. And so the Major League Players Association really needs to be a champion that's saying, no, we're out here looking out for the interests of players. When you get into the minors, we're an organization that's looking out for your interests. We don't want you eating dog food while you're trying to play a game. You're making zillions of dollars for these owners in the minor leagues. In, in, in areas of this country that have no major league teams and where these minor league franchises are growing and are becoming business. The minor league players do not need to be eating dog food. They do not need to be sleeping on, uh, on, uh, at, the, at, the, at the goodwill of nice people who allow them into their homes. And they also need to be saying that, that there need to be provisions that are made so that there can be legitimate free agency as opposed to uh, kicking these guys out essentially when they hit the age of 30. So it's a different argument, Dave, aimed at a much broader audience uh, surrounding essentially the owners and squeezing them until they scream. Wow. Powerful words. I can't think of better ones to end on than that. Bill Fletcher, thank you so much for your, your passion around this issue. We're going to make every effort to get this interview to Tony Clark and try to shake things up with your words. I really do appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and an honor. And thanks for all the work that you do. 
And before you go, I ask every guest what music they're listening to these days, whether it's music to relax, whether it's music to exercise to, whether it's music just to get in the right frame of mind for the daily struggle. Do you want to share with us any of that? Oh, I always listen to jazz. I mean, I and, and I, yeah, <laughs> always listen to jazz. And I mean, I like other kinds of music, but uh, I, 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 I love um Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, Joey Alexander, this brilliant Indonesian pianist who's like 15 years old. Um, Yeah, that's me, man. There's a, th- th- and you know what? We're going to find some Joey Alexander and play it with this interview just so everybody gets hip, not only to minor league baseball organizing, but to this 15 year old wonder kind who you just hipped us to. Thank you so much, Bill. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Take care. And now I've got some choice words about the collision of the Black Lives Matter movement with the Sacramento Kings. Okay, look, on Sunday, March 18th, a 22-year-old black man named Stefan Clark was killed by Sacramento police, shot in the back in his grandmother's backyard. They took his life with 20 bullets. After killing Clark, the officers even muted their body cameras so you couldn't hear what they said in the aftermath. On Thursday... Following a week of protests, civil disobedience, and other actions, Black Lives Matter demonstrators marched and their actions made national news across the sports pages. Yes, the sports pages. These protesters made the decision to surround the Sacramento Kings' publicly funded basketball arena, the Golden One Center, preventing fans from attending the game. As police closed in, the team locked the doors, keeping all the fans out, with the exception of a smattering of people who arrived early or entered through a VIP entrance. The game was subsequently played in front of empty seats, the silence of the arena standing in for the silencing of Stefan Clark's voice. On Sunday, before the Kings tipped off against the Boston Celtics, players on both teams wore t-shirts during warm-ups, with Clark's name on the back and the phrase, Accountability, we are one, across the front. They kept the shirts on during the playing of the National Anthem. Then on the Jumbotron, the Kings and Celtic players played a public service announcement calling for police accountability. In the video, Celtic All-Star Al Horford said, We will not shut up and dribble. Word also got out that former Sacramento Kings players, DeMarcus Cousins and Matt Barnes, even offered to pay for Stephon Clark's funeral. Yet all of this athletic activism only happened because Black Lives Matter activists in Sacramento dared to act. I spoke to the founder of the Sacramento chapter of Black Lives Matter, Tanya Faison, about the decision to surround the arena and shut it down. Faison said to me that none of it was planned beforehand. She explained... Normally, how I organize, I go with the vibe of the crowd. Since Stefan was somebody who had a lot of friends and family, many of them attended our first event earlier in the week and they were coming to this one. I knew I wanted to kind of follow their lead, so it was not planned to go to the Golden One Arena. 
It also wasn't planned to block the freeway. None of it was planned. It was just how the crowd moved. We went to go block an intersection and people started to get on the freeway. The police blocked the traffic for us to be there, but we didn't want that, so we headed to the Kings game. And then it was just like automatically somebody said, hey, let's not let anybody into the game. And so that's what we did, end quote. One of the stunning parts of this story is the way that the Kings had a game without fans, costing the team an untold amount of money, and yet they immediately displayed sympathy with the protesters and the family of Stefan Clark, from ownership to the front office to the players themselves. Faison said to me, yes, that was really surprising, but it just showed that even though there's a lot of people saying they're not happy with what we did, it needed to happen. I'm very happy with the outcome, especially the video by the Kings and the Celtics who spoke out in support. So yeah, I'm very happy with that. Hopefully, it's followed up by some action. End quote. This action includes, by the way, an open invitation from Tanya Faison to Sacramento Kings players to do Black Lives Matter organizing in the city. She said to me, players should come through to one of our events so they can reach out to our chapter and help out because Stefan Clark is definitely not the first person in Sacramento that's been killed or abused by law enforcement. Last year alone, we were fighting for a number of people and we've been fighting for different people since 2015. If they really want to help, there's a lot of work to be done, end quote. You know, back in October, an associate editor for the Sacramento Bee, Erica D. Smith, wrote that Faison, quote, might not be the leader Sacramento wants, but she's the leader Sacramento needs, end quote. She has certainly proved that where it matters most, among the people and in the streets. This episode of the Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you by The Nation magazine, as it always is. They are the primary sponsor of the work that we do. I want to give a shout out to the next issue of the mag, which looks amazing. We've got George Zornick on the March for Our Lives and the youth movement that is at the heart and leadership of that movement. We got Michael K. Honey on 50 years of Martin Luther King, particularly looking at King's work with the Poor People's Campaign. And of course, we're, we're commemorating 50 years since Dr. King's assassination. Uh, throughout the month of April. And we also have Sebastian Faber on the Dutch right wing, which is frightening and very important. So to everybody out there, please check out The Nation magazine. And remember, when you go to thenation.com slash subscribe and subscribe to The Nation, you're not just reading the best journalism out there right now. You're also supporting the continuing existence of this podcast. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award Stand up! goes to the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, the women's basketball team. Notre Dame had every reason to give up against UConn, but then they won it on Enrique Ogumbawale's uh, incredible step back from the side uh, in overtime to go up 91-89 with one second left. I mean, just an amazing game. And I wanted to highlight them for Just Stand Up because they had every reason to give up in this game. I mean, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish jumped up to a 24-11 lead in the first quarter, and then UConn went on one of their typical runs. They opened a double-digit lead, and that's usually when UConn opens it up and they end up winning by 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 points. But Notre Dame, playing just six players, decided that they were going to keep going, that they were going to tear it up. And, you know, they did this even without their All-American Brianna Turner, 
uh, who went down with an ACL tear. And it's just an amazing performance. The five starters for Notre Dame scored 89 of the team's 91 points. They stood up, and they also gave a smackdown to everybody who said, oh, women's basketball is not entertaining because UConn is so dominant. Give me a break. I said this last year when UConn lost in the Final Four, and I'll say it again this year. The fact that they are so dominant is precisely what makes it interesting because when David fells Goliath, we remember those moments, and we remember them forever. So just stand up to the Notre Dame Fighting Irish and just sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Happily and loudly goes to Mark Emmerich, the president of the NCAA, who, by the way, makes $2 million a year for what is supposed to be a nonprofit. Just sit your ass down, Mark Emmerich, for saying, well, if we pay players, that will be a Title IX violation, and then you wouldn't have women's sports, like Notre Dame beating Connecticut in that thrilling finish. So he's basically leveraging the fact that we saw this amazing game as a way to justify not paying the players. First of all, this Title IX thing is an utter charade. We talked about this with Patrick Ruby a couple weeks ago. Lindsey Gibbs also has a terrific article over on Think Progress that people should read about why it's not a Title IX violation and why the women players should be paid as well. Mark Emmert, please, with your $2 million a year salary, which is done through the exploitation of labor, sit your ass down. This episode of the Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you by The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. The Sun Does Shine is the inspiring memoir of a wrongfully accused man who found life and freedom on death row. Archbishop Desmond Tutu gave The Sun Does Shine a good review. That's some good stuff right there. And Archbishop Tutu said that The Sun Does Shine restores our faith in the inherent goodness of humanity. And in the foreword, Brian Stevenson writes that the Hinton story, quote, will inspire our nation and readers all over the world, end quote. The Sun Does Shine, available wherever fine books are sold from St. Martin's Press. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, which we talk about the latest and goings with regards to Colin Kaepernick. Folks, check out his Twitter feed recently. Colin Kaepernick is now going after the CIA, and God bless him for doing so. He's talking about America's, quote-unquote, involvement in Africa over the 20th century, linking to uh, BBC News, talking about four ways the CIA has meddled in Africa, and particularly talking about uh, the way they've uh, gone into Ghana and meddled with the sovereign government there. And the reason why he's doing all this is because there have been mass protests in Ghana recently as citizens have fear a loss of sovereignty with regards to a recent deal between the U.S. military and the Ghanaian government. So please check out Colin Kaepernick's Twitter feed and learn something about what the CIA has done to the African continent. Well, that's all we have this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu for the job he has done. Thank you so much to Bill Fletcher uh, and your wisdom and your passion on an issue that I think has so much importance. Thank you so much to Tanya Faison and everybody involved in Black Lives Matter in Sacramento. 
If you want to listen to back episodes of the Edge of Sports podcast, you can always go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. And if you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you can do so over Twitter at Edge of Sports or email me at edgeofsports at gmail.com, particularly if you have some nominees for the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. Please also go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Give us a rating, write us a review. All that stuff continues to help us build this podcast. And I want to give a shout out to a show that I just did an interview on, a podcast called Better Off Red. It is a podcast with a decidedly socialist bent, and they interviewed me about Michael Bennett and what's being happened with him. I don't know if I'm going to talk about that on my podcast or not, but I went through a long interview with them on that. Check out Better Off Red. Just give it a search on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. To everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.